I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I write for The New York Times and The New Yorker. I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. Welcome to episode 6,000 and something. I don't even know anymore which episode it is. I think it's in the what? Is it in the 60s? It's or 50s, 60s, 70s? What? Surely we've reached three figures. I don't know. Uh, I anyway, it's figures. something. It's a new episode of Three on the Isle, a monthly podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of Theater Communications Group. Well, <laughs> welcome back, everyone. Who's been vaccinated? Anyone? Not yet. Who feels nope. as if they'll never get their shot? My mother uh, has. Oh, over in Corsica? Yes. Sacre bleu. Sacre bleu. Mon dieu. Putain. SpongeBob. I shouldn't say that. Oh. I just swore in French. Oh, that's good. I've, no, been, actually, I've been watching this French male. TV show and it's they're saying, it, they're saying it all the time. Oh, my God. Putain, as they I say know. on Spiral. Okay, um, exactly. Well, well, you know, I just wanted, I, I will confess I'm, I've turned 65, so I am entitled under the, I'm entitled under the New York State guidelines to a vaccine, and I have an upcoming appointment, uh, wow. believe it or not, at the Javits Center, uh, so uh, I will soon join the anointed or the uh, vaccinated, um, but I'm beginning to wonder uh, if that's even going to make a difference uh, in terms of theater starting up again, because... You know, Fauci is saying, uh, you know, maybe not till the late fall or early winter for things to get back to normal. So I'm not counting on any sooner than that. You aren't? No. Elizabeth, no. you? I, uh, at the rate the vaccination is going, no, it's going to be, it's going to be such a long time. I, yeah. Certainly in New York um, where everything is crawling. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I got a, um. I got an email from uh, the Baltimore's Hippodrome Theater where they claim to be they're going to start up their season again in, I think, September. But I again, mm. I don't trust any of these announcements anymore. How can you really believe? I don't know who's going to actually, I'm sorry to say, uh, uh, you know, plunk down money to, knowing that they're going to have to just shift it to another date, you know, later on. Yeah, at this point. no, this is no, I think uh, I think we're going for another Last year, there's a lot of wishful it, thinking out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's very depressing to to think that. And these variants, it just makes me think. You know, what yeah, now they're going to worry about the new strains. That's, that's that's what's creating this uncertainty because, like, we don't know how effective the vaccines will be against. I mean, I don't know. It's we're, oh my God! Do we want to start our beautiful podcast on such a bummer note? Oh no! But sadly, sadly, it is the state we live in. Yes, but let us shift away from that. Yes. <laughs> so our main focus today, though, is what the world might look like once enough of us are vaccinated. So uh, stop bragging, Peter. Uh, and eventually, theaters begin to reopen. Uh, and more to the point, uh, of course, because we were critics. What does it mean for the future of our own calling criticism when theater is back? Uh, and of course, we'll talk about what theater journalism will look like when live in-person performance is again widespread. To help us sort out what might be in store, we have an illustrious guest, Soraya McDonald, culture critic for The Undefeated, the widely read sports and culture journalism website owned and operated by ESPN. Soraya has fast become a leading voice in America on all aspects of the arts and entertainment. No pressure, Soraya. Um, garnering the 2020 George G. Nathan Award for Theater Criticism, among other accolades. Which is she a big deal for listeners who don't know that. Oh yeah, it's the it's the it's the gold standard for yeah. uh, 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 theater uh, cr uh, theater critics. She was also not to uh, ladle it on too thick, a finalist last year for the Pulitzer Prize for criticism. No small potatoes there, and was runner up in 2019 for the Vernon Jarrett Medal for outstanding re reportage on Black life. And now. Soraya, welcome to Three on the Isle. Oh man, thank you for having me. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> I hope yeah, to be a genius. <laughs> we are very glad to have you, uh, Soraya. All of us have been writing about the performing arts in this protracted period, 
when the traditional ways in which we attend theater, dance, and music performances have been denied us. We've all been looking at theater in particular online as our main source for coverage. Why don't you start by sharing with us your sense of how this shift in emphasis has changed what we do and maybe how the news organizations we work for might view us. Do you think the fact that we've found ways to cover theater when in the traditional sense there is none will change theater reviewing going forward? Ooh. Um, well, first off, I suppose I would say um, I haven't, you know, I found that I just haven't been dedicating as much of my time to to writing about theater, you know, as I had before, um, because I also write about TV and film and books and, you know, various other things that come up. And so um, basically, you know, when everything started to shut down um, in March of last year, uh, you know, and I had a conversation with my editor, it was basically just, okay, well, I guess we'll, we'll just sort of, uh, you know, up the ratio of the coverage of these of these other subjects and and just kind of wait it out. Did you expect to see so much theater go online in the wake of the beginning of the pandemic? Not at the beginning, because because everything was so scary, right? And we didn't know, like, we didn't really understand how the virus spread or like what you could do to to mitigate harm. Um, you know, it was it was really crazy. You know, everything just shut down. Remember that week when Tom Hanks got sick? The NBA basically was just like, it just canceled everything. You know, it was so. It happened so quickly and so dramatically, and then yeah, I went to I went to see uh, Katori Hall's new play one night, and the next night it was like the guillotine had dropped. Yeah, yeah. As we got further into it, um, you know, I think maybe six or eight weeks into the pandemic, um, I started reporting a story um, that. The Undefeated did in partnership with National Geographic, basically, about how this city was coping. You know, we are, New York is this, is this capital of all things sort of culture and performing arts. And then it's, it's shut down. And, you know, all, all anybody is hearing, you know, for weeks is, is the sound of ambulance sirens. Um, and, that's when, you know, I started hearing from artists, basically, from a bunch of different fields, like how they were making things work, you know. And I think, like, one of the first sort of artifacts of that period was, like, Michael Urey doing buyer and seller in front of his computer. Mm. Um, oh, gosh, there was another one. Oh, right. I think Jordan E. Cooper wrote, like, a short little, like, mini play to be done on performed on zoom called mama got a cough. And then we started to get like more of a sense of like, okay, what's possible. Um, and, but I really, I don't think it was until circle jerk that like, we saw something that seemed to like really embrace the possibilities of what you could do remotely and with the internet that didn't feel sort of like a compromise in some way, but actually mm -hmm. felt um, like it was, it was sort of embracing the medium. Mm. Um, and I think part of that is because like, beca is because it's so obsessed with the internet, right? It's a, it's a play about internet culture. Um, and, yeah. and its effects on people. And so that, that works, you know, perfectly as opposed to maybe, um, some of the more kind of traditional things that we've seen where it's like point a camera at a stage, uh, and then, um, and, and try to, you know, you're sort of asking yourself, is this theater, you know? The first shows that the very first shows that I covered were out of town shows that were in dress rehearsal or or final run throughs. Right. And had the plan had already been that they were being taped for broadcast. So the, the very first things I saw were multi camera shows shot in front of a live audience uh, on a, a full size stage. And the transition seemed quite easy to me. But within a few weeks, all of those shows that the pipeline had gone dry and everybody mm. was trying to figure out what the next move would be. Mm -hmm. 
Peter, can you sit up higher? You're about to disappear from your friend. <laughs> yes, teach. <laughs> My God. Thank you. We're back in fourth grade. Thanks, Terry. Oh, I wasn't, you know, I just turned in something where I was talking about the way that there's something about the regality of Cicely Tyson that makes you just want to like sit up straighter and improve your diction. (laughs) I was very comfortable until uh, Terry Terry told me to sit up. This is, this is, this is the downside of zoom. But wait, I I have a question. Is this a tale? Because I was told once and I didn't realize I was doing that, but I was told once that when I'm really bored at the theater and I don't like to play, I sink we all lower and lower and lower into <laughs> yeah. my thing. Yeah. And when the top yeah. of my head like appears, and I really didn't realize I was doing that. And so now I try not to do it. But apparently it's my huge tail. Oh, it's just wow. this kind of like, like my spine was being eradicated by bad theater. Oh, and, that, is uh, bad, that is a bad well, tail. You know, yeah, I wanted yeah. to say, based on what's when, interestingly, when Sarai brought up Circle Jerk, um, which I don't, you know, it's still, I think, is it available online still? I'm not so sure. I don't think so. But, um, but you know, you know, when you think about the way, you know, where theater was going before all this and the sort of the, mm-hmm. the self-referential, the meta sense of theater, understanding, mm-hmm. you know, that acknowledging to people that they were in a, in the space with the actors, which seems, yeah. you know, very current, you know, the more it does that online, the more it does feel like theater, as Soraya is saying, you know, that, that it doesn't feel, you know, the artificiality of watching people on a proscenium uh, online is, you know, two steps removed from what, we want to feel when we're experiencing this form. So that makes sense to me that, you know, there has been this maturing of understanding of what we're trying, of what theater artists can do in this space, which makes me think, you know, once we've embraced this or once, you know, we're now a year into this and I am seeing more sophisticated camera work. I'm seeing more uh, 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 pieces that are absolutely thought through for uh, the internet, you know, yes. does that now become, uh, a, a facet an important facet of what a theater company does? Do they have to be sort of medium multimedia minded to make it past this? Because mm-hmm. I don't know that we, if we step back and, and as critics, you know, is our, is our job in part to, you know, promote that to push theater companies to be this in, to, to 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 include this now going forward. Do they need us to say that to reinforce that as a you know as a as a proactive mission that they've got to inculcate? Or am I you know am I just are yeah. we living in this you know this period where it just feels like anything we do uh, is just uh, a matter of uh, encouraging? before the return yeah. to to another to back back to before as they say. You know, I'm not sure because <clears throat> on the one hand like you know, you have these these obvious advantages um in terms of of just making the art more widely available to people, you know, across the country and the world who who may not otherwise have ever been able um to see to see a particular production. On the other hand, I don't want to be insensitive to the, you know, rules that have been set up by various unions and guilds, um, you know, when it comes right. to profit sharing and, and who actually benefits from, uh, it, you know, that whatever sort of additional revenue comes out of this, because, you know, if, if the artists don't see any of it, but they're, their work basically lives in this kind of like IP form of, of a recorded performance um, that, that doesn't feel great either. (laughs) And, you know, I think one of the things that the pandemic has really foregrounded so much is, is the economic inequality that we see like within the theater world, right. Where, Um, you know, I was talking to Oscar Eustace and he was saying, you know, basically like if you are an administrator, um, you know, depending on where you are in the food chain, you can, you can make a good living. Um, but that doesn't necessarily get trickled down to the artists or even necessarily some of, you know, the, 
the sort of lowly or considered front of house folks or, um, or any number of jobs. Um, and so, you know, I think that is actually, a, and we were talking about this in the context of, of trying to revive, you know, a version of the federal theater project, um, because we have all these artists who, who can't work and can't pay their bills and may or, you know, the longer this goes on, the more you have people who are, who are leaving an expensive city like New York because they just can't afford to live here anymore. And it's a, it's a talent drain. It's a culture drain. And like, what do we do about this? I feel like the, the pandemic has exposed um, some huge like structural problems in, in theater that really uh, are very similar to yeah. what happened in academia, for instance, where you got this kind of bloated yes. bureaucracy that has appeared supported by a lumpen proletariat of artists mm-hmm. in theater and like adjunct faculty in academia. While you have this completely kind of fairly recent layer of administrators. Yes. I mean, the I mean, academic yeah. administrators have been doing very well in the past 10, 15 years. And I feel there's been something re- similar in theater that has happened. And that was kind of not really well known. And it suddenly just everything was blown out into the open. Right. When people became more open about talking about basically, you know, balance sheets yeah. for for theater, mm-hmm. which is kind of new, was a kind of a little dirty little secret. Right. And when you look at <laughs> when you look at what some artistic directors have been, you know, poking at that, when you look at what they're making, it is it, mind-boggling. It makes your head explode. I was, and the signing bonuses yeah. that they get are on top of that are insane. And the discrepancy between that and the commissions, for instance, that playwrights can get are mm-hmm. uh, Seriously, it will send anybody to like the barricades with pitchforks. Yeah, it, it would just to look at that. It's so upside down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you know, I think you know, if you're asking about sort of like what our role is, you know, as critics and journalists, um, you know, I think one of the things I'm I feel obligated to do now is I'm like, okay, the next time you know I'm doing a story where we're talking about these things, I just got to go to GuideStar. And and pull those salaries, and we just have to publish them because they're public information. Do Do you think because for for a long time I feel like the critics' persona or duty or job description did not include that. Do you think that has to be a factor when looking at a show? That this this has to be a factor. Do you, Do you think the it's part of the critics' job to have almost like a kind of civic minded engagement? in that way? Or do you think? Yeah, I guess yeah. I do. Yes. And I, I mean, I think that's because I started out, you know, as a, as a journalist, <laughs> like that was, you know, one of my first sort of like journalism workshops that I did outside of school was an IRE workshop where we, uh, investigative reporters and editors, um, you know, which was all about basically learning how to file a FOIA request, learning how to look up you know, salaries of non, you know, of administrators of nonprofit organizations and all of those things. Um, And so I I think that's always been sort of part of my mindset and approach. I think that it's also because like, even though my, my title is critic, I still do a fair amount of reporting. Um, It's just sort of, I feel like it's kind of evolved into this hybrid role and part of that is because there are so few of us now, right? Like it's it, that we're all doing more and different types of work than maybe we would have been 10 or 15 years ago where you had newspapers that could afford to have, you know, several like just dedicated art journalists. And then you had a critic and all they did was criticism um, right. and, I mean, it's always been different in regional theater because people at smaller newspapers, uh, you're never just a critic. You do profiles, right. you do stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, and uh, the few of us that have that write for the surviving larger publications, um, even now, uh, I I don't naturally put that cap on when I'm thinking about what I'm covering. Yeah. 
And I do. See, I have always had that um, that other life. And I have found that in this period, I have be- I'm catalyzing more than I am criticizing. I feel mm. like my job has mm-hmm. shifted to something where I can push ideas to the fore and be a spoke a, a, a speaker of 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 the needs of the field more yes. than I was where I was much more reactive and I think that that's an interesting overlay if you think about the democratizing of our field at the same time that Soraya says there's less of us there're actually uh, conversely more of us because more people are weighing in in all kinds of ways that we don't necessarily feel you know that that are that don't have as large an organization behind right. them on the other hand I just reviewed a completely crowdsourced Disney musical, (laughs) in a sense, that was, you know, completely kind of the GameStop version of theater building, theater making, which was the... the, the Rata- musical the, version of uh, Ratatouille the that, <laughs> that was the Ratatouille that got put together, uh, you know, in a kind of embryonic form, mm-hmm. but certainly uh, valid for uh, analysis. So there are yeah. these things that we have to sort of take notice of that are changing around us and pr- pushing us in new directions. Yeah. Soraya, who do you read? What do you read? What publications? What writers? Uh, like just generally or specifically with regard to theater? Generally, it's it all feeds into each other. So It does. Yes, that's yeah. true. Um, well, lately, actually, again, because I was working on this piece about Cicely Tyson, I found myself revisiting Sarah Kaufman's The Art of Grace. Um you know, because if there's anybody who's an embodiment of grace, how is it not Cicely Tyson? Yeah. Um, and she's got this wonderful explanation in there. Um, I kind of extrapolated a little bit, but she's got this wonderful chapter when she's talking about how people, how performers basically learn that sort of dignified comportment um, <laughs> that that actually becomes... Um, like you learn to live it because of the needs that vaudeville would pull from, um, you know, both as both with like theater acting, but also dance training um, and all of these different aspects that sort of that teach you how to how to exist in that sort of physicality that I just do not have. I'm not a graceful person at all. <laughs> Uh, Me so, neither. <laughs> so I'm like fascinated by that. Um, but, you know, in terms of like on a daily basis, oh gosh, um, like what do I, I mean, I wake up, I look at Twitter, <laughs> which is, we all look at Twitter. It's a terrible habit. <laughs> um, but I find myself, you know, I, I have long been obsessed with both Mark Harris and Wesley Morris. <laughs> <laughs> um, two of the best. Two of the best. I just adore both of them. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, just, I just think they're so smart. Um, but also Angelica Jade Bastian at uh, Vulture, um, who I think is like so incredibly thoughtful and brings so much like emotion to her writing. Um, Alan Seppenwall at Rolling Stone. Um, he and I spent a lot of time just like geeking out about Watchmen. <laughs> um, and he is actually one of the reasons why I now have like two copies of the comic series instead of one. <laughs> oh my God. That's a serious commitment. Yes. <laughs> Soraya, Soraya, you know, we are, you know, we are sort of siloed in theater, the three of us. You have a more, it's, you're, you're, uh, you range much more uh, over other, uh, topics yes. than we do. Where in your so where do you where do you place theater in the in this in the in the in the in the menu of 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 cultural offerings? How big a space does it occupy for you? If mm-hmm. your consciousness has to roam over all this material, is, you know where does theater sit? Is it is it really a niche? Is, no, you know, is, is, do you, not at all. Do you, do you find it more influential than that? Yes. Do you find it, you know, important? I do. Yeah, because, I mean, so, you know, prior to the pandemic, like, um, I only moved here in January, in, to Brooklyn in January of 2018. 
Yes. Um, and before that, I had been living in Washington, but not really covering theater there. Um, you know, but every once in a while, I would basically just try to take the, the train up and just see a bunch of shows in like three days, right? <laughs> and then go back down. Um, but once I moved here, uh, Steve's directive to me was basically, he's like, go do everything. Just say yes mm. to every invitation, right? Yeah. So go to Fashion Week, go to every show you can see at Fashion Week, go to every theater show you can see, just go to everything and just try to immerse yourself as much as possible in the city. Um, which is wonderful because then like I could just go out every night and expense it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but was also exhausting. <laughs> yeah, sure. uh, and in addition to that, you know, they said, okay, well, since we're saying yes to you moving to New York, we also want you to cover the U S open. <laughs> oh, this oh my God. Awesome. That is a snootful. <laughs> yeah. Um, There's theater there. There is. Absolutely. I mean, there really is. Like there, I always tell oh, yes. people, I'm like, there's not that much difference between sports and theater. Truly. Right. Um, but so as the year began to unfold, um, and in particular, after I got back home from doing National Critics Institute at the O'Neill, I just, I felt like I had more of a sense of like grounding and confidence in, in what I could do and bring to the subject as opposed to just feeling like a dilettante on some level. <laughs> Mm. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so like Steve noticed this immediately and he was like, okay, he was like, this is what we're going to focus on because like people for whatever reason, like are eating this up. And I was like, great. You know, I think of, I guess you're talking about Steve Reese, your editor who yes. I know. So just make sure people understand he's your yes, assignment. He's, he's your, your guru, the guy you go to for exactly. story assignments. Yes. Right. Um, and he's like, so basically he was like, let's do more of that because, you know, the other thing that I noticed very quickly um, is that, like, I would go to things and I would be, like, the only Black person with a notepad. You know, I'm, like, looking mm. for other Black critics who are writing about theater and it's like, well... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so yeah. then I, I, I think I had, I felt even more of a sense of, well, I need to do this because I need to be in the room. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the other thing is, I mean, I just think of myself as an evangelist for theater because I've loved it ever since I was a kid. My mom put me in theater camp when I was like, just starting when I was like seven. Um, and I loved it. I loved dressing up. I loved being able to put on makeup. I loved singing in front of people. <laughs> Um, I just, you know, it, it just made me so happy. Um, but you know, for the most part, like it was always like this dorky thing, literally until Hamilton. And then like all of my friends who used to make fun of theater geeks were like, <laughs> Oh, d- like, have you, have you listened to the cast recording? <laughs> You know, like I was that awkward little child who was like, you know, listening to like a funny thing on the a funny thing happened on the way to the forum when I was in high school when I was like fourteen right. and like geeking out over you know Miles Davis and Kind of Blue and just feeling very very strange because because <laughs> no one else in my class is really doing that. Um, but the reprieve that I had from, from feeling outcast about that was that my parents sent me to the summer camp, um, called Duke Young Writers Camp, where I learned, you know, one of the things that you learned from there was a bunch of different writing styles. And so like, I did a course that was writing for video and I learned how to like storyboard things and, and write mm. scripts. Um, you know, I did like essay writing. Like, so there were all these different things, and like everybody there is a nerd, <laughs> and so then ah. you can just all geek out together. <laughs> the denerdization of American theater. <laughs> um, but what is that? But but Soraya, what is that? Lo- you know, you describe yourself as the only black writer or the only black person with a notepad in a theater. What? does that say? I mean, you know, we, we're in this era of we hear you white American theater, you know, there's a, 
a new sort of obviously consciousness of white supremacy. We're all mm-hmm. talking about it. The theater world is both, you know, energized and paranoid about it, particularly among the white administrators <laughs> of the theater. What the well-paid white administrators? Yeah. Well, so what's what has that? You know, what, what has that? Has that been a burden for you to have to, you know, be the a, a voice that is a voice of color in this sea of white people? No, no. The burden is um, no, because I, I, you know, I mean, aside from Steve and maybe a few other people who I respect, I really don't give a shit what white people think. But. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> The burden, honestly, like the thing that I struggled with after having such a wonderful year last year um, was that I didn't feel it. It didn't feel completely earned because Mm. I know, you know, I may be the first black woman who's ever won the George G. Nathan Award, but that doesn't mean I'm the first black woman who's ever capable of doing that Mm. work Mm. Um, or who deserved it. Or who mm-hmm. deserve right? So it it feels like a you don't want to put too much stock in those things because right. you don't feel like because you know that the ground that that you're sort of being judged upon um it isn't one that's that's fully sort of egalitarian in the first place. Mm. Um, and so like the. And it doesn't feel like a burden, but I would say that the passion that I have or the drive that I have basically is to just like flood the zone with more critics of color. <laughs> right. Because, right. Um, I, you know, because like I want to, I, you know, if I'm going to be judged against my peers, then I, mm. I want to be going up against, you know, the people who are like. I want I want a full spectrum, you know, like Makes sense. I, that's the only way it feels valid to me. Um, otherwise, mostly I just feel really embarrassed. So but, but so here's the so the conundrum. And I don't know if Elizabeth and Terry agree with me or you do, Soraya. But in a time when this is receding, you know, when the opportunities are dec- are, are are not expanding, mm-hmm. they're they're retrenching. Mm-hmm. How does how do we get more? Uh, uh, critics of color into the into the mix of, uh, you know, how do we do this? How do we make this, you know, exciting for uh, and and, and how do we get organizations to understand they need, Mm -hmm. you know, more diverse and more. They have to be inclusive or or they're going to fall behind. I mean, do I have to quit my job? Is that the way I you know, is it is it is it do I have to make I I don't. No, I, I hope not. I, I don't know. Um, I mean, <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think people necessarily need to quit their jobs, right? Because then it, it becomes sort of individualized mm. and it's down to, oh, this person or this person or this person. But like, you don't sign your own paycheck. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, the, right. the pressure should be on the folks who actually hold the resources. <laughs> Um, to do a better job in the way that they are distributing them. <laughs> um, so I would, you know, I would say rather than necessarily maybe putting pressure on you, I would put pressure on, well, before he retired, Marty Baron, right? Or, right. Uh, or Fred Ryan, um, you know, the publisher of the Washington Post, you know, the same thing with with the Times or the LA Times, or the Wall Street Journal, or, you know, these few sort of remaining like stalwart news organizations. Um, like it is, it is upon them to, to do the work because they are the ones that have the resources and the capital and they are the one, they, they are the gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Well, the fact that you write for ESPN points in a different kind of direction. Oh, it's really there weird. Are- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are places yeah. that ought to be doing this kind of coverage, mm-hmm. and once, once, and if they start doing it, then they really do have a clean slate and can uh, yes. try pe- different people, different different ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's it seems to me like there's unlimited opportunity there. I hope so. You know, I was telling a friend earlier that like. What I would love to see is 
is a publication like Teen Vogue, which has a very sort of like mm-hmm. distinct readership, um, have its own, you know, stable of critics because there is, you know, a sort of house style that we expect from that magazine and a perspective that they are bringing um, that is valuable and that, you know, and the other thing that it does is it says to the readers of Teen Vogue, like, these things, whether it be, you know, opera at the Met or, you know, or theater or any of these other sorts of performing arts, you know, where it's there's always this hand wringing that, you know, the people who love it the most are sort of dying off. Well, <laughs> if you don't have people at the publications who are sort of catering to younger audiences who are writing about these things in a way that's like passionate and and shows that there are how much there is to be gleaned from it, you know, and they just sort of think of this as, as the purview of dinosaurs, then yeah, it's going to go away. <laughs> it's yeah. it's so true, especially because it's also uh, underestimating your audience and yes. thinking that they're yes. not interested in that stuff. I mean, when mm-hmm. I, I, I did a story recently about these teenagers who are writing musicals and, uh, this 16 or 17 year old was like, yeah, my favorite composer is Sondheim and my favorite show ever is Sweeney Todd. Mm-hmm. Why, why assume that there's not more like her? Yes. All of, exactly. I mean, it's crazy. They're really hungry for that stuff. And as we know, teenagers are very active, not only, not just consumers of stuff, but creators of stuff yes, right now. They're incredibly so smart. They're incredibly it's discerning. It's this kind of loop that is completely ignored. And and theater has been very, uh, theater and publications, I think, have been very uh, narrow-minded. And they're so creative. I mean, like, like TikTok is basically, one of the things I love about it is that it is just sort of like this scrolling wellspring of, one, joy um, and weirdness but also like creativity and the things that that people are pulling from, you know, the different sort of lip sync challenges that people do, you know, it's not like they're just pulling from like contemporary film and television, you know, they're doing the women, they're doing, um, you know, all sorts of, of scenes from like golden era Hollywood, you know, Mm -hmm. this idea that, that, youth is only obsessed with this kind of recency. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's not real. Right. No, it's true. Yeah. This is, this has always been exasperating to me in the er- specific area of classical dance. Um, there is absolutely no reason why young people can't see this and say, Oh my God. Yes. That's cool. Show me more. Yeah. And yet I don't feel the sense of outreach that would make that happen. Yeah. And I think it's, oh gosh, who was I talking to about this? Um, But it was actually like New York Times opinions ran this piece last year or the year before where they're basically saying there need to be more critics who are just as sort of familiar with, um, you know, with the the Metropolitan Opera as they are with Megan Thee Stallion. And I was like, Mm -hmm. yes, exactly. Because like once you can find a way to, to find the commonalities in those things and bring them together, um, it also sort of lessens the intimidation that I think comes, especially with opera, right? Because most of it's in a foreign language and you're reading super titles and everything else. Um, You know, if you can, you know, it's the same as sort of drawing um, or, are just showing the the parallels, the obvious parallel, but the, the the purposeful parallels between something like 10 Things I Hate About You and The Taming of the Shrew. Mm-hmm. Right. right? It's well, the same thing. Well, I, I do, do you feel that, I think one of the th- questions that have been really uh, big this past year is really the basic question of like, what what is theater? Like for mm. instance, like right now, there's this kind of interest in uh, male art like theater via mail. Okay. Oh, I'm not yes. sure how that qualifies as theater, but it's happening. People are saying mm-hmm. this plays by mail. Okay. So regardless of whether or not we agree with that, there's definitely a kind of 
rethinking or attempts to say, okay, what is theater? What qualifies? Does it need a live audience? Does it need live actors? So there's been a lot of thought about that. Right. And I think, I feel in a way that theater has been a little behind. Um, like I'm a huge fan of Gia Corlas at the times because she writes about classical mm-hmm. dance, but then she'll write about like uh, marching bands and, yeah. you know, people like this, I think recently she wrote like a, a gym some kind of gym component, I can't remember exactly. But it's a very, very fluid uh, definition of dance, which is more like movement. movement yes. Which, of well, course, is most, everywhere. Right. My most but, read story last year was I reviewed the um, the applause when uh, in the streets of New York when people right. wrote about it from a critical mm-hmm. point of view. It, you know, people mm-hmm. are looking for this connect. They're looking yeah. for the connection they've always looked for, which makes me wonder, though, so are newspapers and other news organizations, are they, do they have to relinquish the traditional review? I mean, is it too old school to be going or, to a play or a, or a movie and just writing, you know, 700 words, which are an analysis and in, yeah. in and of itself? I don't think you don't they think have so? to relinquish that at all. I, I don't think it's a matter of subtracting. I think it's a matter of adding these other things in. Well, that is just right. That is yeah. so well said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, God bless you for saying that, right, Donald. <laughs> Jesus. Well, Thank I am you. Pumped. I am pumped. This conversation has like completely <laughs> energized me. Well, uh, Soraya, you uh, you have like made the time pass uh, in a second. <laughs> Well, we're, thank you so much. This has been you, so are much energi- you are an energizing person, Soraya. Yeah, no, we're 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 thrilled that you took the time to talk to us uh, because you are um, you're somebody I read uh, uh, voraciously. So I'm I I'm proud to say that. Oh and goodness. for those of you out there who want to read Soraya, you know, you should obviously go to the Undefeated. Also, you can uh, follow her on Twitter. <laughs> Where uh, oh, she's very, uh, where her handle is at Soraya McDonald, but you would also find Shady Lady, <laughs> Shady, Shady Lady Jane from, from Seville. Seville. <laughs> who, who wouldn't want to follow yeah. the Shady Lady which, from Seville? Which I love. Shady Lady from Seville. <laughs> which is just great. So, uh, so on many levels, we thank you for joining us today, yeah. Soraya, and well, uh, we'll so read much. you going forward oh. into the brave new world. <laughs> Godspeed. <laughs> you too. You too. Okay, we turn now to our trademark segment, a survey of what we've seen lately. Elizabeth, start us off. So I just saw a show that I loved and that will live on YouTube for the foreseeable future, so you can still see it, and it's called Blood Meal. It's only 30 minutes. It is wonderful. Um, it's part of the Theater in Quarantine series where uh, this guy named Joshua William Gelb created a stage in his tiny closet in his East Village apartment, and he's been doing these shows from inside the closet. <laughs> and the new one is remarkable because on so many ways. First, it's it's a new play by S- Scott Shepard, who co-wrote Underground Railroad Game, uh, which I had loved at Ars Nova um, like three four years ago. Five, I think, at this point. Um, and Blood Meal is about these two people uh, who are convinced they have a bed bug infestation. So they are not <laughs> leaving their house. And we don't know if that's true or not, but they're convinced it is. So they're completely paranoid. They're not leaving their house. And so there's two actors. Each one is in a closet in different houses. And they manage through technology to be in the same shots. It is incredible. And they did it live. They had a special like software that allowed them to sync their voices. Uh, they even, at, at one point they took a bath together. I just could not <laughs> believe what I was seeing. And it, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It's glorious. It's very funny because it completely skids out of control. Of course, the, the wife uh, is, is really scared. She says, as long, as long as we have doubt, we are not free. As long as we're not sure that we're rid of the bugs, we are not free. Mm. And it's just, wow. he's, he's really, he want, he just wants to go. He cannot stand being indoors anymore. What's the company? Um, 
It's theater in quarantine. I highly recommend it. It's on YouTube and it's called Blood Meal. Do we have to, uh, uh, do you have to like, uh, is it live or can you? Uh, well, it was live. They did it live. They did two performances live. Uh, I saw the second one. Uh, so they could get rid of the ahem, bugs. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but now, I mean, the, there's a recording of the live performance that's on YouTube. So you can go and it's check free? it out. Um, and it's free. It's on YouTube. Oh, great. I'm uh, look. Blood Meal Theater in Quarantine. It is absolutely, I mean, seriously, you will not believe that they were in different apartments. I love it. That um, sounds like there's fun. There's only yeah. a few times when like, the um, superimposition bleeds. But it, I mean, if I, honestly, if I had not noted, I may not even have suspected they were not in the same space. And those closets are tiny. The way they make <laughs> them look huge is at one point, they, they even have sex at one point. So I'll let you imagine how they pull that off. Spoiler but it's really alert. Funny. Okay, I'm curious. It's, it's, uh, Mike, it's, it's all c- fully closed, so you'll, you'll see. My curiosity I is think you, would, uh, you guys will enjoy it. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable. And again, very funny. And also... I won't spoil the ending, but but my wife and I looked at each other. And we were like, we've had that conversation, and it was we were gobsmacked. It's like they had a mic in our house, and one of our biggest fights was exactly about what they have a fight in the show. It's it's, it. it's incredible. It's incredible. Well, I can't top that. So in, I was going to mention a show I'd seen uh, for the journal, but I think instead, since Soraya alluded to him uh, when she was with us. I'm going to talk briefly about Mark Harris's new book. Uh, Mark Harris is, is known as a film commentator, and of course he's Tony Kushner's husband. He has now written a biography, a primary source, essentially authorized biography of Mike Nichols. And it is the best, not just the best theatrical biography I've ever read, it's, it's one of the best biographies of any kind about anybody that I have ever read in my wow. life. He talked to everybody who was still alive, uh, starting with Elaine May. Uh, and she doesn't talk looked, to anybody. Yeah, but she talked to him. And uh, he's, um, y- you know, uh, I think it's interesting that although Mark is a film person, he gets Nichols both from a cinematic point of view and from a stage point of view, which is quite unusual for writers so working in both, both sides of the street. And um, he's gone back to the archival videos and pretty much all of uh, Nichols shows survive an archival video at, at uh, Lincoln Center. And he's seen everything. He's, he's taken it in. Uh, he, of course, has looked at all the film that Nichols and May did back in the late 50s and early 60s for television. And he he completely conveys Nichols as a personality, someone whom everybody loved, absolutely everybody. No, nobody quoted in this book has a bad word to say about him. And I can't tell you how unusual that is for a biographer, but there's no sense that he's covering anything up at all. He's just telling the story of a great artist who was greatly loved. It's a big book, but it's worth the time. Uh, that sounds great. I once had to interview Nichols when he won the Kennedy Center honor. I spent time in his uh, in his office in New York, and uh, his secretary. The first thing that happened was his <laughs> his secretary came in with a giant bowl. It looked like an offering. It, like she had to lift it and she put it down in front of him, and it was all tiny chocolate chip cookies, hundreds of them, which he mainlined throughout our conversation. I mean, you know, oh, that's funny. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I, my impression, that's the strongest imp- memory I have is chocolate chip cookies with, with, <laughs> with Nichols, but I'm dying to read this book. And Mark is such an eloquent mm. voice he's great. online. Uh, you know, he's a delightful uh, sort of just presence. So, this this sounds like in keeping with who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, but Mark, Mark Harris is his Twitter handle. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to ask before I make my recommendation, Terry, am I sitting up enough for you? Am I? Uh, you look great in the frame, Peter. Thank you, Mr. T. Chow. 
Um, okay. So anyway, I'll just briefly mention a show I saw, which is actually very old school. Uh, it's a review called Simply Sondheim done by Signature Theater. It's pure comfort food. It's mashed potatoes with lots of butter. Uh, and it does all the all the all the famous numbers you want to hear from but, but being they alive. Also do a, like, don't they do like a song from Reds? I thought that was a nice yes, little... Yes, they do do. Yes, I, I forgot. They're... I didn't even mention that in my review. I That's know, but, so but who true. cares? But like yeah. for, for the ones yes. who have... Yeah, you know. there's a there's a couple of like uh, there's a couple of like uh, exotic pieces mm -hmm. in mixed in with this mostly uh, uh, some of the stuff you've heard a hundred times. But it's got um, people like Norm Lewis, Emily Skinner, Conrad Ricamora, uh, some uh, some very good uh, Washington performers like Donna wow. Migliaccio and uh, Bobby Smith, people who are, you know, real veterans at, at, at Sondheim. And it's it's an hour and 45 minutes, uh, pure cream and pure pleasure. Uh, so it's Did any of you think you would live to see the day when we could and be expected to be taken seriously, describe a Sondheim show <laughs> as comfort food? <laughs> That's where we are. It's so good. That's, yeah, you know, know, it's exactly right. You know, when I was using these words, I used the word warm and I thought, you know, there were so many people who are, you know, uh, 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 who think of him as cold and I don't, but, uh, you know, I was, I was, as you say, Terry, uh, so rightfully, yes, there's this sense of, you, you know, Sondheim is now, uh, he, he writes old standards, you know, in a sense. I, so I'll, uh, I'll have to admit that my comfort food would not be Sondheim, but like more like a Jerry Herman type thing. Oh, God. Uh, or no, Cyclone or Comden and Green would be my ideal comfort food. But, um, you know, well, to each their own. That's because you're from Corks, <laughs> where they don't, that's you know, right. they don't. They, don't have, they from, didn't know Sondheim on Corks. I'm from Corks, where we only like Comden and Green. <laughs> And, and no. Sondheim is discomfort. That's yeah. right. So, so anyway, that's so that's um, that's our episode, folks. Uh, uh, thank you for listening. I'm Peter Marks, and I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I'm Terry Teachout. Our producer is the irreplaceable Erica Wong. You can follow us on Twitter at Three on the Isle and write to us with questions. We love questions and are eager to go into the mailbag at three on the aisle, spell it out, at gmail.com. And please let us know what topics you'd like to hear on future episodes. We're all ears, all virtual ears. Um, and don't forget to leave us an excellent review or rating uh, on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you get your, your podcasts. So thanks for listening. We'll be with you again soon on the virtual aisle.